Amen. Our reading from God's holy word comes from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 2 and extending to verse 7. Please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we believe your word. It is true through and through. Not the dot or the least stroke, not the jot nor the tittle will pass away from this word until all is fulfilled. Therefore, we can trust it. And we know that it speaks to us of a truth of which we can base our entire life. And that we do. Today, as we come into your presence, listening as we have just heard from your word, we now with expectation would ask that you would come and make this word plain to us through the power of the Holy Spirit, that he would come and enlighten our darkened hearts, and that through this spirit, you would glorify yourself as we behold our wonderful, our beautiful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Come and meet with us now, we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you may have noticed that the theme of this service in such great measure is this motif of light and of darkness. It started from the very beginning of our readings, our hymnody, 
As we saw it a second ago in John chapter 1, as we see it now again in Isaiah chapter 9, and there's only one good reason for why light and darkness are the main motif of the service this morning. And you know what it is, those of you who are longtime members here at Cornerstone, you know what it is because you've been worshiping in this building for the last three months as people who have dwelt in darkness. If you're new with us this morning, these four stained glass windows to my right, to your left, have been missing from our sanctuary. They were covered up with plywood. And we had simply paper pictures of those windows attached to that plywood. And if you sat on the right side from from my vantage point of the sanctuary, the left side from your vantage point, you said as a people who dwelt in deep darkness. <laughs> you had no light that came through those windows. And so the reason we're focusing on light and darkness is because we have our stained glass windows back. And we were absolutely thrilled at it. I heard that yay over there. <laughs> no, it's not simply that. It's the fact that we are in the midst of a bright season. A time of light, a time of revelation. Uh, You know the feeling, it happens, I know for me, just about every Christmas, that nostalgic warmth, the moment when you see the tree aglow on Christmas Eve as you sip on your holiday hot chocolate or coffee and you hear Bing Crosby sing Silent Night. And you feel that warmth, nostalgia, that sense of sentimental haze sort of comes over you. And that spirit of Christmas, as so many in our world call it, begins to finally dawn. But as soon as that feeling comes for so many of us, a feeling that we wished we could bottle up and sip on throughout the year... As soon as it comes, it goes. For it is hard to sing. All is calm and all is bright. In a world that is full of rupture. With lives that are filled with darkness. In the midst of listening to those very words of silent night this Uh, Last Friday, I actually received word of a good friend who had just been diagnosed with brain cancer. And all of a sudden, that beautiful refrain of all is calm and all is bright just seemed to immediately fade with the recognition that all was not calm and all was not bright. And the question of this particular text is actually speaking to the reality of a moment such as that. When the darkness seems oh so much brighter, if we can speak of it in that way. And instead of the light overwhelming the darkness, it seems as if the darkness is overwhelming the light. How can we know that all is calm And all is bright when all is not calm and all is not bright. 
It's a question that Israel must have been asking during the time of Isaiah's writing. At this point in Israel history, the Davidic throne, that glorious kingdom in the promised land, has been divided into two kingdoms, between the north and between the south. And all around them, and even within those two kingdoms, there is nothing but darkness. To the north, the kingdom of Israel has foolishly just aligned with Syria in order to defend against the encroachment of the Assyrians. And to the south, in the country of Judah, where Isaiah is actually writing, King Ahaz has been left alone and is vulnerable. And he's putting his hopes in political answers rather than in the promises of God. In the two previous chapters to the one in which we are reading this morning, Isaiah's predicted already the destruction of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians, an action that will happen in 722 BC, just a handful of years after Isaiah's writing. And in the southern kingdom, Isaiah already foresees the downfall of King Ahaz, this unbelieving king who in his sin has set a domino effect into play where Judah will experience dire circumstances and suffering at the hands of those Assyrians when they come in and devastate Jerusalem in 701 B.C. So when Isaiah says in verse 2 that the people walked in darkness, he wasn't kidding. When he said they dwelt in a land of deep darkness, he wasn't joking. From outside through enemies and from inside through the ranks of unbelief and sin, the people of Israel are hemmed in by darkness all around. And the darkness, as you might imagine, is not merely of a social or of a political kind, though those expressions were certainly present. It was a darkness of a much more deep and sinister kind. It was spiritual When he says they walked in darkness, he means to say that they walked with spiritual blindness. They they lived life not seeing the truth, the reality of things. That they were a people who walked around in a dark world with an internal darkness, who looked for answers in that dark world, and all they got was darkness. But they didn't know it was darkness because they were internally dark. And so when the world gave them answers, they took those answers as light. But those lightened answers weren't light at all. They just reinforced the darkness. Like the man or the woman who turns to alcohol to snuff out their holiday fears and sorrows. A cure that is no cure. A darkness that gets darker still. Isaiah's mentioned a similar kind of struggle in the nation of Israel in Judah at the time. A people who struggled to know what it is that they should do in the midst of such darkness and evil threat around them. And so Isaiah says they look to the necromancers and they look to the soothsayers. They they look to those who were pagan in their falsehoods to give them light. But of course the light that they gave them was only darkness. And the darkness became, as he describes it here, a deep darkness. They dwelt in a land of deep darkness. It's the Hebrew word salmant. 
It literally means a shadow of darkness or a double darkness. It's the kind of darkness you feel, those of you who have been caving. And you've gone into the deep recesses of a hill. And you with your guide, with your little spotlight on your head, tells you, and we're going to sit down for just a moment and we're going to turn off all of the lights. I want you to turn off all of the lights and then I want you to stick your hand right in front of your eyes and I want you to see if you can see it. And of course, no one can. A darkness that you can feel. A darkness that he refers to in chapter 8 as a thick darkness. As something that you have to wade through. It's the same word that David himself used in Psalm 23 when he talked about walking in the valley of the shadow of death. It's a death darkness. And in the midst of such a place, which is where the people of Israel are, we're told a great light comes. From the valley of the shadow of death, a salvation emerged. These people, he says, have seen a great light, and on them has light shined. Well, what is this light, Isaiah? What is this light for the one who's just been diagnosed with brain cancer? What is this light for the one who has lost their way and all of their intentions have come to dead ends? Who is this whose life is anything but, on this Christmas, Mary. What do we mean that a deep darkness, in the midst of that darkness, a light comes? Well, Isaiah gives us three reasons in verses 4 to 7, respectively. As he sees this vision of a multiplying nation... As he sees this light of a joyous people at harvest. As he sees the light of a victory and plundering the enemies. He gives us three reasons in verses 4 to 7. He says in verse 4, For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Uh, Those who are oppressed... Those who have enemies, those who are being attacked and see darkness at at every gate of uh, the city. He says, on them the yoke has been burdened, has been broken. On them the staff of the shoulder has been removed. On them the rod of the oppressor has been overcome. As on the day of Midian. Isaiah is giving us a historical picture. Which is common in the prophets, isn't it? How they look back to the old redemptions in the history of God's people and they remember how it is that the Lord met them and they bring forward that redemption into the present and they say, remember how it is that the Lord met us. Over and over in the scriptures we see this. Exodus being the paradigmatic example of the redemption of God's people in the midst of such oppression, in the midst of such slavery, God brought his people out, as he says, through Moses, through his righteous right hand. And when there seemed like no hope, he parts a Red Sea and they walk over on dry land. When it seems as if they're going to be destroyed, 
The sea comes crashing down upon their enemies. This God is a God of redemption. But here in this moment, he speaks of Midian. Midian, that story of Gideon. In Judges chapter 7 through 9. That valiant warrior of the people of Israel of old who went into battle against God's enemies, the Midianites, who with a great army came to fight Israel, and Israel with a great army came to fight them, and God said, no, you have too many people, Gideon. I want you to whittle down your army to just 300. And then as you whittle down the army to 300, where it looks like you'd have no hope whatsoever, I want you to know at that point, you're in the greatest spot imaginable for the success that I want to win for you. I want you to go by night, and I don't even want you to think about shooting arrows or, or coming in with, with swords. I want you to come by night with torches, and I want you to just blow horns, and I want you to smash jars, and you know what's going to happen? The Midianites are going to be thrown into confusion, such confusion that they're going to turn on themselves and they begin slaughtering one another. And you won't have to do anything but watch them kill themselves, for I am the Lord who breaks the rod of the oppressor. He says, I want you to remember that victory. I want you to remember that accomplishment, that that great throng that Isaiah sees looking out in the darkness of the Assyrian encroach, he looks back to Gideon and he says, I'm going to bring a Gideon-like redemption into the midst of what seems like an overwhelming darkness. But the Gideon victory is only a symbol of a greater victory that I'm going to give. I want you to see how great this victory is. Look at verse 5 with me. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Uh, This is the less savory part of Isaiah chapter 9. It's not usually the, the sections that we read during the Christmas season, but it actually sets the context for understanding the power of this messianic prophecy. It's a grisly image, isn't it? The muddied and tramping boots of warriors, blood-stained garments from those who have died, now being used to fuel the fire. But the point of the image is not here to give us a battlefield strewn with the wreckage of a battle that's just ended. It's to show us that the battle is over. It's an image of hope that there won't be a need now for boots that tramp during wars. And there won't be a need for clothes that are bloodstained. This is the last cleanup of the final battle. All has been won and all now is over. And those things which were once used for war are now being turned to ash. For this Gideon-like victory that I am bringing is the final and ultimate victory, the war of all wars that ends all wars. No more bloodshed. No more sorrow. This is the victory that I give to my people. 
so you can see, as Isaiah speaks to a people who dwell in a land of deep darkness, people who walk with an internal sense of blindness, in the midst of this, he says, I'm going to give you a Gideon-like redemption, but it's going to be greater than any Gideon-like redemption you've ever seen. And so there's only one question to ask. How are you going to do this? Who is this that's going to come? Who is this greater Gideon? Attila the Hun? William Wallace? You can see him, can't you? Bulging biceps. A sword too large for most of us to wield. Verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now it's probably here, I think it's safe to say, that the Israelites would have lost Isaiah. Or at least questioned Isaiah's vision. For this is not what anybody expected to hear. A greater than Gideon deliverer. A warrior who will end all wars. This is the great light that breaks into the darkness. Here it is, friends, a child. A child. The deportation of the Galilean nations of Naphtali and Zebulun, which are mentioned in verse 1 of our chapter, has already begun to happen. The enemy is, is waiting in the wings to attack Judah. They're breathing down their necks. And so Isaiah says, I want you to know there's a great light that's coming. A child. A son is going to be given. Now, is, this would have struck Israel as strange, if not offensive. And I believe it strikes many offensive still today. That God's answer to the terrorization of our world is little more than a child. But we must remember that Isaiah, looking through the veils of history, being inspired and led along, as Peter tells us, by the Holy Spirit, is thinking God's thoughts after him. And God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And his ways are not our ways. He has come to show us a more excellent way. He is revealing, within these few verses, his infinite wisdom through an infant. He is, in these few verses, showing us his ultimate strength with the sinew of a baby. He is in these few verses extending to us eternal love with the gift of a child. He is describing for us the establishment of perfect peace with the presence of a little boy. You see, wisdom, strength, care, and peace, that's what this whole passage is about. For those are the names 
that are given to this child that is born, to this son who is given. He is called Wonderful Counselor. He is called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. The verse 2 of those names describing his character. He is the very wisdom and the very power of God. The last two describing what he will do. He will lead us to our everlasting father. And he will give to us ultimate peace. You see, the wisdom of God is, well, it is wiser than, than man. In fact, the foolishness of God is wiser than man. Paul tells us that the weakness of God is even stronger than man, so that when the world throws their greatest warrior towards God's people, God lets loose a child on the battlefield. He walks a little boy into the midst of the fray. He is the wisdom of God. He is the power and the strength of God. How? Because he can give us a father. And he can bring to us peace. It's probably the most curious of the four names, Everlasting Father. Didn't we just say he was a son? Didn't we just say he was a baby and now he's described as an, as an everlasting father? What, does, what on earth does this title mean? Or as one of my friends has said regarding this passage, what on heaven does that mean? For this child is no mere child. This child is the son of God who lives in perfect union with his heavenly father. Which means that he is alone qualified to bring folks like us. You know what kind of folks we are? Fatherless orphans. Those who are called strangers and aliens to the covenants of promise. We need someone to bring us into relationship with an everlasting father. And who can do that but one who's in perfect unity with that father? Who is that but the son of God? A union so close that once Jesus forges it and brings about our redemption, he gives us his very name, Christian. And he shares with us his very inheritance, righteousness. And he gives us the very words of his endearment, Abba, Father. We are, if we are in Christ, sons and daughters of the King. But maybe we would ask ourselves, how is it possible that we strangers and aliens, we orphans, could become to say of ourselves in relationship to God through Christ that he is our everlasting father? It's a fair question. It's a question I think the text is hinting at when it leads us into this language of the Prince of Peace because it's not just us as pitiable orphans begging to be, as it were, in the Father's presence. You know what's really taking place? We're orphans because we're enemies. We've raged against God going back to Genesis chapter 3. We've replaced God with idols. We've ignored God with distractions we tried to outrun God with our own achievements. And every day we've tried to replace God with ourselves. Living as if we are number one. That in thought, word, and deed, perpetually breaking the first commandment. 
And so how is it that enemies who are orphans are brought under the peace and adopted into the family and the kingdom of God? Well, this language of Prince of Peace is something that runs throughout the writings of Isaiah. As he tells us back in Isaiah chapter 7 that this Emmanuel is coming, this one who will be God with us. He tells us here in Isaiah 9 that he will be a Davidic king who will come and rule expansively. But it won't be until later in the servant songs of Isaiah, extending from Isaiah 40 in through 53, where he tells us exactly how this Davidic king is going to do it. You know what he says in Isaiah 53? A verse we don't usually read at Christmas, but one that we should. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The Prince of Peace. You see, it's against the backdrop, the dark backdrop of the cross that the glorious light of the manger can really be seen. Which is why it's no surprise that at the birth announcement of the Lord Jesus Christ, the shepherds were watching over their flocks by night. For Jesus came to us as a people who were walking in darkness, a people who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, He came to us in the midst of not just a certain time of the day, but a certain spiritual climate that is not unlike that cave of a darkness that we can feel so thick that we'd have to wade through, a spiritual darkness that we can't see our way out of, and a world that offers no light with its answers. Jesus came to that kind of people. He came to us and he came for us. He came to remove that darkness. And to remove that darkness, he had to enter that darkness. Could it be that Jesus was born in the dark for it was darkness that he came to face? You know, is it too much to suggest that the night birth of the Lord Jesus Christ was the entrance into the deep darkness that he would only ever further move into through the course of his life? And that in this born-in-the-dark Savior would climb what you would expect to be a place of light, a mountain called Calvary, but in that moment would actually be descending into the valley of the shadow of death. For it would be there that he would enter the deepest darkness of all. He would pay for the very penalty of our sins. And he would assign for us our adoption papers. Our passport. Our welcome into the presence of the everlasting father. And he was able to do this. To win us the peace because he entered our anguish. He became a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. This Jesus, who's always known the love of his father, became as an orphan on the cross. He became as an enemy orphan 
on the cross, experiencing the abandonment of his father, crying out, not father, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Isaiah says this child is born, this son is given, as he enters into the deep darkness and the battlefield that is this world, he had in view, no doubt, that cosmic clash that would happen on the cross. This Jesus was made like us in every respect, yet without sin. So that he might become for us a merciful and faithful high priest, the writer of Hebrews tells us. To make for us a propitiation for the sins of his people. When you consider the story and the unfolding of Luke chapter 2 as the shepherds stood there that night against the amazing backdrop of that black night sky. Luke tells us a great light came. When they least expected it, the glory of the Lord, we're told, shone all around them. And an angel of the Lord said to them, fear not. Fear not the approaching enemies. Fear not the sins that will do you in. Fear not of the death that is sure enough going to come. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy. That will be for all people. For unto you is born this day. A child is born. A son is given. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Who is Christ the Lord. And with those words, light broke into the darkness. A light that had been longed for for the people of Israel for centuries previously, a light that had been snuffed out almost completely by the time of the first century, since it had been 400 years since Malachi had spoken the final words of the Old Testament, a silence that had become a darkness among the people of God. In that moment, through the glory shining around through the announcement of the angel, a great light came into that deep darkness. And the darkness could not overcome it. For in him was life. And the light was the light of men. Do you see this light, this Jesus, he comes and he brightens through the message of the gospel. And today, even as this gospel is proclaimed, it is as if that light once again breaks through from the heavens as a people who sit in a variety of darknesses here in this room. Stories that play in your past and through your family's past. Present hurts that snuff out your joy. Apathy and complacency as you seek for pleasures that always seem to fall dull. In the midst of that darkness and in the looming darkness that comes, the gospel of Jesus Christ breaks in and it says, look to the horizon For a great light has come. 
When Isaiah spoke these words, he spoke them not in the future tense. He spoke them in what's called the perfect tense of the Hebrew. A completed action that has ongoing power and effect. Isaiah was hundreds of years removed from the fulfillment of the words that he spoke, but he spoke them as if they were done. Because they were done. They were as sure and as complete in the moment that they were spoken because God's promises are always yes and amen. And today in the pew that you sit in with darknesses surrounding you, with threads of your life unraveling and dead ends all about, in the moments where we think that this is indeed the end, in that darkness a great light shines. And it's a light that doesn't mean momentary or temporal ease. It's a light that means eternal life. We may not know tomorrow, but we know the end. And when we know the end, we can face tomorrow. For Jesus says to us, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, we ask for this light. And we ask for this life through the Lord Jesus Christ. That this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting father and prince of peace. That through his power and through his rule upon his shoulders and of the increase of this kingdom. That indeed it will have no end. That he has on the cross dealt the death blow to the enemy of our souls. And because we know that his end is sure. We today can see a light. Though surrounded with darkness. In the midst of rupture. We can, in the light, experience the rapture of his grace. Would you come now and know us in the truth of these words to the degree that we must know them in our souls? Would you mediate this grace to us and in life see the light of Jesus? We ask this in your precious name. Amen.